Hello everybody, I'm Jim Barton here at um, Bloody Mary Bible Brunch, and I'm here today with Abigail Conley, pastor at Chalice Christian Church. And we're going to talk today about, um, I guess, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, as well as just sort of um, responding to the police brutality that we've seen over and over again in the news, and what we believe that our faith calls us to do in response uh, to this uh, ongoing uh, tragedy. So I guess one of the first things that when we talk about this topic is it's fair to mention that there's plenty of scripture about the way the outcast is treated. Um, you know, one of the ones that pops to mind for me is uh, the story of Hagar and um, when, um, you know, when Hagar was, Abraham sent Hagar away with her son Ishmael um, and she was being mistreated for no reason. Um, for because of who she was, because of her her um, intrinsic self, uh, God didn't abandon her. Even though God's um, people, Abraham, God's servant, did abandon her and sent her away and turned away from her. And so I think that's one uh, message that comes out of scripture that relates to this situation where we see people being mistreated and essentially terrorized by their own society. Abby, you had another yeah, so I was thinking of the story of David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth. Um, David, of course, became king of Israel. And there's a story of him and Jonathan. And this friendship, many people, of course, say it was a romance rather than a friendship. But this person that he loved and who he cared for. And one of the sons of that person was um, handicapped. And he had a foot that there was something wrong with. So he couldn't serve in the army. And so after this battle, the one in which Jonathan died and David just lost a very beloved person to him, he sent and had the son who survived, Mephibosheth, brought into his household and brought into the palace and kept there and um, offered a royal life among the people because he was both beloved of his friend, but also because he was someone who couldn't care for himself completely um, and was living... Had it not been for David, would have probably been a beggar on the margins of society. And so, you know, you know, that's another story I think where we see that God's not abandoning people. We have the story of the um, of the uh, Good Samaritan that we actually talked about last week, but I haven't posted yet. Um, you know, the story of the Samaritan of the well. There's so, there's many stories in the Bible that have to do with the outcast being treated justly or the outcast being loved by God. But here's um, Here's the thing for me is that as we sit here, um, two middle-class white people, you know, at a brew pub, um, we aren't the outcast. That's not our story. Our story is not the person who is oppressed and who is downtrodden. Um, in fact, as these stories have sort of come to light, I'm, I'm reminded of a time when I was pulled over. I had my daughter with me and um, the cop pulled me over and said, uh, do you know why I stopped you? And I remember I was very like embarrassed to be in front of my daughter and be pulled over by the cop. And so I said to him, I have no idea why you stopped me. And he said, well, you, you veered over into the bike lane. And I responded to that equally belligerently. I said, okay. And he then uh, said, well, we're looking for people who are drunk. And I said, yeah, there's none of that here. So the cop turned around and left and he didn't even um, check my ID. He didn't even ask me for my driver's license. And you know, as I see the videos now, these things that are coming out, I think, you know, um, 
RJ Howard at our who goes to my youth group. If that if he had been in that position, he might be dead. Mm-hmm. Jacquees Blackwell, who I went to law school with, Jerry Johnson is a friend of mine from church. I, you know, these people I know, if they had done the same behavior, they could have lost their lives. And when you think about participating in that level of privilege, that is sinful. And it is, and part of the reality is it's this whole system that we live into and that we live in. So when I hear you talk about police, you know, most white people, if you're thinking about it, have a story of privilege, and it's okay. And one of them is, quite frankly, that if I call the police, I expect them to show up and respond. And guess what? Every single time they have. Despite the fact that Chalice is in, like, the lowest crime area of any church I've ever served, I called the police there more than anywhere else every time they showed up. And one time I had called because there was a guy sleeping on our back patio when I got there. I went out and talked with him, and um, he wanted a cool place to stay. It was summer, and he wanted to get picked up and taken to the jail where it was 80 degrees instead of 100 and get a meal and be sent on his way. And so after he yelled at me a little bit to just call the cops, I was like, okay, I'll go call the cops. I'd never done it before. I had no idea how to call the cops if it wasn't 911. So I found the number and I called them and by the time they came, he was gone. So the police officer sits in my office, takes a full report. And it was one of the worst moments of realizing privilege because, one, he believed everything I said. There was no questioning of me other than getting information. He also, in the conversation, was said, this guy, what did he look like? So I gave him a basic physical description. He said, well, what race was he? I said, oh, white. Because I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. It's so expected that anything other than white you yeah. would talk about, but white you never would. Right. And so you go through these things where you realize you've, you've been formed by this system of you're given privilege just because of the color of your skin, and you participate in it. You can't help but participate in it. And I think, so for me, the stories in the Bible that speak to the current situation we have with um, the brutality against um, um, Americans of the country who are black, I think about the story of Jonah. And the reason I think about the story of Jonah is this. The people in Nineveh were being sinful as a whole people. And in order for them to avoid destruction, the people of Nineveh, they had to turn from their sinful ways. And they had to put on sackcloth. And they had to, as a whole people, repent from their sin. And I think about that's where we are if you are um, a white person in America is that you need to take action. You need to turn away from your sinful conduct. And I think something else about the story of Jonah, by the way, it was the whole city that was in jeopardy. And and at the end of the story, you know, um, when God um, passes over and decides not to destroy Nineveh, and God is talking to Jonah about, why are you so upset that I didn't kill all these people, right? He says, all these people and animals. So there's a suggestion that what was in jeopardy was even the blameless. Surely the animals are blameless. So personal um, culpability is not a part of it. 
That's not what we're talking about. Right. And you know, that is actually the argument that you often hear with the personal culpability. I grew up in the Southeast, so one of the constant arguments is, well, I never owned any slaves. Right. My family never owned any slaves. We were poor. So what do I have to do with this? Well, you know, you have a lot to do with it because you benefit from the system. But it's a hard thing to talk about. Um, and it's a hard thing to acknowledge, especially if you don't see the immediate benefits. And this is where, too, I think, for the people who suffer under the weight of the system, you can understand why they're tired of having to convince people that no, there is such a thing as white privilege. No, it is, you are, you know, two and a half times, three times more likely to be killed by the police if you're black than if you're white. The police are two and a half, three times more likely to kill you, uh, you know, in proportion to, to your percent of the population. And to me, that's another part of the Jonah story that speaks to me is that like, because Jonah was the prophet who had to bring this message to these people in Nineveh, and Jonah didn't want to. Jonah was like, frankly, fuck the people of Nineveh. Why should, why should they get the message? You know what, God, I just soon you destroy the people of Nineveh. And when I see friends of mine, you know, frankly, most on Facebook, honestly, but friends of mine who are black and are having to like have these arguments over and over again, I see them in the role of Jonah, of like they have this prophetic message. You know what, white people, you need to repent. You need to change your behavior. You need to make a radical change and you need to freaking do something, right? But then also I see the point of like, and you know what, I'm sick of telling you about it. Right. You ought to just, I'm tired of it. I shouldn't have to be the one, I being the, the, the people who, who are the, those who are the victims, right? The people who bear the burden. I can understand why that person's like, I shouldn't have to be the one who tells you over and over again and convinces you that you've got your foot on my neck. Um, and so kind of the frustration of Jonah, I think, is a fair representation of where I think the frustration can be read in the, um, in the eyes of the people who have to keep making this message. Now, you had an even better story about corporate sin from the Bible that I did not remember. Yeah, I had actually a harsher story that, you know, hit me in the gut a little. It's probably one of the more familiar ones, but I didn't remember all the details until reading it today. It comes in Exodus uh, 32, and it's after the people have left Egypt, after Moses has led them out, after all the plagues and everything, they're, they're making their way to the promised land. And while they're there, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, as we would call them, to receive the law. And he's gone for a really, really long time. And he's gone for so long that people decide, okay, he's not coming back, so we should do something. And so his brother Aaron has been left in charge, and Aaron says, give me all your gold. We're going to make a golden calf, and we'll worship that. And he actually even calls it the Lord, the name only given to God. And so the people are bowing down and worshiping. And while Moses is up on the mountain, God says to Moses, hey, hey, the people are down there, they're screwing up. Go, go see about it. And so Moses goes down and um, immediately is filled with anger at what is happening. He actually breaks the, ten, the law that he has been given. He um, pitches a fit right there would be what we would often say. Kind of like Jesus overturning tables. Grinds up all of the gold statue into the water and makes the people drink it. And then he asked Aaron, you know, what went on? He said, well, we, we were afraid, and so I did this for them. And so Moses then 
says to everyone who's with me, um, who's with God, who's following God, come gather by the gate. And so they did, and he said, okay, you have to go, each of you, and kill two people. You kill a brother and a son, because you need to feel that loss, too. And then it says in about 3,000 people died that day. And Moses then goes back up the mountain, gets another set of laws, and eventually goes back to the promised land. And for me, that story, when we talk about these things, talk about racism, and talk about Black Lives Matter, and talk about death at the hands of the people who are supposed to protect you, I think very much of those Israelites who knew the way and lost it and then very intentionally did exactly what they shouldn't have because you can't deny the fact that we actually did create systems where people of color are viewed as less than human especially black people yeah slavery wasn't an accident slavery that was based solely on race wasn't an accident it was also unprecedented Slavery before that particular slave trade era had been based on conquest. And that's yeah. how, when you read the Bible, slaves are among the most educated people often. And so this just, oh, your ruler will sell you out to us, let's take you to another country, and it becomes very clear who is a slave and who isn't. That is a special kind of horrible. And just because that ended, we didn't say, okay, well now everything's better. Well, then you prevent the slaves, the former slaves, from owning land, and you create Jim Crow laws. And you keep those laws going for so long that we don't know how to fix it anymore. How do we fix the fact that there are bad parts of town that are often populated by people of color? How do we fix the fact that the schools in those towns are underfunded? Talking about this horrible, intentional, complete system building around this priority. And so, even if you or I never did anything like that, we, we have completely benefited from the system and we said yes to it, just like the Israelites did. Right. And I'm not going to suggest that, you know, we call for the death of people like Moses did, but we can talk about the fact this is going to, fixing this is going to cost us. It, it, ha it requires sacrifice. It requires because sacrifice. Because if you have privilege, if one group has privilege and you surrender that privilege, that is not done without a cost. Right. And um, and it's going to be painful. Like, if you talk about losing a son or a brother, that's painful. Right. So we're talking about, no, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt us. But we're going on to something better. Because when I read the Exodus story, there's always that promise of a land. Yeah. A land where things are better and a system where things are better. And we can't lose sight of that hope. Right. That what is now is not what is meant to be. Right. And so, how do we honor the fact that, yeah, that's going to hurt. That's going to be hard. It's not, and it, you know, I think about, you know, Bonhoeffer's term about cheap grace. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about social change, when we're talking about demanding justice, that's, you know, charity is when you use your power to help someone. Mm -hmm. Justice is when you give up your power. And this is about giving up power. Right. This is about, and, and, and first acknowledging that there is an injustice, but that's, it's not enough to say, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. You've got to do things like make it a priority for the people that you're going to vote for. I'm not going to vote for you if, if you don't, if you don't recognize this plank about criminal justice and fixing it. I'm not, I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not going to vote for you. I'm going to engage. I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to, and I'm going to acknowledge that 
you know, there needs to be racial justice in schools and we can't have this de facto segregation. Right. And so maybe that means that my kid's school gets less money. And maybe that means that things are not as easy for me as they would be. Or things are not as easy for my kids as they would be because I'm going to require that everyone be treated with respect. And if everybody's treated with respect, then that means the guy who was, you know, when I was in law school, there was always a professor to take me under his wing. When I walk into a courtroom, it's assumed that I'm the lawyer. Right. Nobody ever thinks I'm the court reporter. Yeah. And we're talking about creating a world where I don't have that kind of privilege. That means that there has to be some sacrifice in that. So, you know, I, I came across this the other day. Um, this issue about justice having a cost is really crystallized in Lincoln's second inaugural address, which I just want to read an excerpt of it. And I think it's worth remembering that Lincoln is speaking these words in the middle of the Civil War. Well, towards the end, but it, while the Civil War is still raging, and while people are still dying, and he's been to battlefields, and he's writing letters to soldiers who have died in this cause. And this is what Lincoln, this is what Lincoln, part of what Lincoln said in the Second Inaugural Address. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Interestingly, not calling for victory, but saying, can this horrible war go away? But then he says this, Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If we as a nation continue to lose blood and treasure in this war as payment for our sinful possession of slavery, then we can't argue but say that God is just. That's a little better than God bless America. <laughs> it is indeed. All right. Well, we'll leave you with that for now. And... Um, uh, a heavy topic, but an important one. Um, until next time, cheers.